This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up to sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to Countrywide. I'm your host, Bridget Herman. On the show, people around the world are drinking less Australian wine. A new variety of Sultana grape is ready to hit paddocks and eventually shop shelves too, but you won't believe how long it's been in the making for. And... Find out what action South Australian farmers have been taking to call for better prices for their produce. That's all in the next half hour, but right now, let's head to the latest in the grocery industry. As the ACCC begins its inquiry into supermarket prices, just how effective would a mandatory code of conduct be? At the moment, the supermarkets only have a voluntary code governing their relationships with farmers, but wholesalers operating through the nation's big central markets are governed by a separate hoard code. So has that made a difference for farmers or for consumers? David Clawton has this report. Sean McInerney is a wholesaler at the Sydney markets and he buys and sells fruit and vegetables up and down the East Coast. He says the mandatory Hort Code, which was introduced in 2018, is working pretty well for farmers. Yeah, there's full transparency through the Hort Code. When you're trading on a product on a daily basis and you're in contact with your suppliers on a daily basis and they make the decision... He says instead of being price takers, growers can pick or choose which central market they want to sell in. They might have two or three uh, wholesalers in three or four different markets and they're not going to send somebody who's selling in 10 bucks tomorrow when someone else is selling in 15. But do they also know, you know, what you've on sold it for and how much money you've made? Sure. Right. So that's something that's got to be published and, and be transparent and visible. He says there are very few cases of product being rejected by wholesalers because it doesn't meet specifications. But that's a big problem for suppliers to the major supermarkets. We know what our suppliers are doing. They know what they're doing because they've got a problem. They let us know. It's very, very, very rarely that happens. In your view, is that code working effectively to protect you and, and to protect your suppliers? Overall, it is. Uh, it is a little cumbersome. The problem is only about 40% of the nation's fruit and vegetables go through the central markets, and that's mainly sold to restaurants and independent grocers. Shaw McInerney says 60% is going through the major supermarkets, and growers face a much tougher time selling to them. Um, The margins are pretty lean. Chris Cope is a consultant who runs Sydney Produce Surveyors, which monitors the prices of fruit and vegetable at the Sydney market. He says there are countless examples of price gouging and unfair practices at the supermarkets. Turmeric on the market is between 10 and about $15 a kilo. It's only a small line, but some of the shops are selling up to $50 a kilo. So the markup is pretty steep. We used to have growers come to us and complain they weren't being paid on time. A whole range of things. He thinks there's a dark side to specials at the big supermarkets as well because they're used to push the price of fruit and veg down at the farm gate. Various times of the year when there were things that are on special, what they do is they, they buy up as much as they can and they dominate the market. 
with their buying power and then they go on special and that forces the market down. What about a mandatory code? We've seen that work quite well in the dairy industry. There's a horticulture code of conduct. Could a mandatory code, on the, like a grocery code, on the supermarkets make a difference? <laughs> That's very interesting. We had one, and we have one now, which I don't know how well it's policed. I haven't, I haven't seen much action on that. In horticulture, you mean? In horticulture. I've seen a couple of merchants prosecuted. But when that time came to introduce that mandatory code of conduct, the chain stores talked their way out of being on it because they said they had their own code within themselves. So that the mandatory code of conduct now is upon the merchants here in the market, whereas Woolworths and Coles were exempt. He worries that growers aren't getting paid enough to be sustainable in the long term. Some of the buyers, some of the, the work for the chain stores, are a little bit ruthless, or very ruthless. They force the market to, uh, to pay you know, virtually the cost of production. I had an instance some years ago where I actually wrote an article having a go at, at uh, one of the Coles buyers. And I said to them, what, there's nothing wrong with high prices. Higher prices mean high margins, but when you push the prices down so low, it means that the growers don't get anything. And he's concerned that farmers will be leaving the industry. You've got to have a sustainable industry. You've got to ha- have it for today and, and, and for it to be reasonably priced, but you want it for tomorrow and next week and the week after and the year after that. Mick Keogh, Deputy Commissioner of the competition watchdog, the ACCC, says several companies have been fined for breaches of the mandatory horticulture code, with the biggest fine being $240,000 for a South Australian potato processor. The problem there was under the arrangements or the contracts that Matalo had with its suppliers, they had no choice but to deliver all their potatoes to Matalo and where those potatoes didn't make the grade um, Matalo uh, claimed it had complete discretion in relation to what they would do with those potatoes and the price they would pay for it. So, so you find them two hundred and almost quarter of a million dollars. Do you did you follow up to see whether things got better afterwards? Uh, yes, that that has substantially changed. They were required by the court to uh, remove uh, quite a range of onerous contracts, and there have been four or five other uh, matters we've taken and uh, had similar results. So. You know, we think the improvement we see in relation to horticulture is that at least traders are now putting their terms of trade up and entering into a horticultural produce agreement so that growers actually know what the terms of their uh, engagement with their wholesaler is. Previous to that, it was all word of mouth and a handshake. And of course, when things go wrong, um, it's very difficult to enforce word of mouth and a handshake. The other thing, which is a bit left field, but... Uh, Chris Cope mentioned that in the US, for example, they have antitrust laws. So the supermarkets in Australia, which have about a 30% share each, might be limited to just 15%. Is that something the ACCC is looking at? Um, we, we look. It's too early in our consideration to, to talk about what we might recommend. But certainly um, the, the classic case in the US antitrust uh, uh, is the Bell Telephone Company, which was forcibly broken up. Um, it was uh, it was uh, made to divest in, and split itself up because it was considered too dominant. Now, that hasn't been uh, a power available under competition law in Australia, um, whether it's um, something that might be considered, um, uh, you know, it's, I guess that's really a question for government, but it will depend, I suspect, on 
the findings of our uh, investigation and, and, and that will be forthcoming in the, in the next 12 months. Mick Keogh from the ACCC ending that report. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Well, I'm Bridget Herman with you today, talking all things the food on your plate and where it comes from. The amount of Australian wine being exported globally has declined in the past year, as people right around the world drink less wine. Both the volume and value of wine being shipped out of the country fell in the past 12 months. That's according to Wine Australia's latest export report. Wine Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Peter Bailey, says it's not all doom and gloom, but the figures do reflect the tough year experienced by many wine producers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Australian wine exports um, fell by 2% in value to $1.9 billion and 3% in volume to 607 million litres um, in the 12 months to December 2023. Over the long term, how does that sort of compare the, the amount and, and volume that we're exporting in the long term? How does that sort of compare to previous years? The positive of these figures are an improvement on those that we reported in the September 2023 report, where we had value at $1.81 billion. So although that, that still is well below long-term averages. And was this expected, this kind of decline, or, and by this much? Yeah, look, I mean, the trading conditions remain extremely challenging for Australian exporters. So if you're looking at the 112 destinations that received Australian wine during the year, um, only 44 imported more value than they did the previous year. And globally, wine consumption is declining, and there's a number of reasons for that. Obviously, there's this global economic tightening, which has seen people you know, reducing their discretionary spending, and also consumers are being far more conscious of their health. As you say, that decline is, is widespread across the, quite a number of markets. There is it a pretty consistent reason why markets are taking less Australian wine, seeing that Europe and North America are, t- are two particular markets where there has been a, a, a drop. Are they the same reasons why they're taking less of our wine? Yeah, look, it's very consistent across the board, and it's not just for Australia, and it's also not just wine. So we're actually seeing alcohol consumption fall as well. And then adding to these pressures, we've also got a global oversupply of wine. So we've had an, an average excess um, wine production of just under 3 billion litres every year since 2012. And that's more than double Australia's total wine production. And then you throw on top of that, you know, health and wellness. Like some consumers are abstaining from drinking wine. Others are drinking less but paying more. While some are also seeking sort of no and low alcohol options. The Australian drinkers sort of picking up the pieces there a bit or is is that a similar trend are you able to say it's it's a very similar trend in the domestic market um the australian domestic market is um uh you know very mature market and it's it's a very similar trend that we're seeing um in markets like the us and uk and one of the trends is we're seeing you know consumption growing at sort of premium wine segments you know that's sort of ten dollars or more per bottle while that has a bigger volume commercial and has been declining so that, that really does indicate that consumers are drinking less, but perhaps choosing to purchase at higher price points. But even at those higher price points, we've actually seen the, the, the growth rates lower um, than in previous years. And this does disproportionately affect Australia, given the majority of our exports um, in volume are in the commercial price segments. Are there any bright spots in this report, seeing markets like Hong Kong and Singapore are, are increasing in, in what they're taking? Yeah, and the latest quarter, the figures are quite positive as well. So 
Um, whether that's, uh, that, that trend will continue, um, it does show there is some positivity in the latest quarter. And yet, like Hong Kong and Singapore were standout um, growth markets and driving some growth into Asia. And the number of exporters into those regions has been growing as well. But we also need to make the point that, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore are key trading hubs in that region. And, you know, as such, some of the wine is on ship to other markets in that region. What about the China factor here? Are they simply out of the equation for the whole time that this report covers? Yeah, look, uh, our exports to China um, really have uh, plummeted over the last sort of three years. And obviously there's a process to play out um, with the investigation at the moment. So I don't really want to preempt any of those outcomes. But that said, you know, China is still an important market for Australian wine. And over many years, Australian wine companies have developed close relationships with importers, buyers and consumers of Australian wine in China. And those relationships remain important to our wine community. More broadly, with exports overall, um, you know, whether or not China comes back on, on board, is this, given what we are hearing about global wine consumption, this is a, a, a trend that is looking to continue? Oh, look, as I said, the, the latest quarter, we've actually seen an increase in exports. So whether that does um, continue or it's just a, a short-term uh, increase, uh, time will tell. But, you know, there's still a lot of challenges and a lot of hurdles that we need to overcome. But, you know, we're, we're aware of those challenges and, you know, as an industry, we're meeting those. And in terms of you know, market development activities, there's still a lot going in on that space in terms, in terms of you know, trying to drive um, Australian wine sales in a lot of these markets. What do wine, Australian wine producers take from a set of figures like this? What, what is the sort of takeaway from those in the business, uh, you know, looking at these numbers? Oh, look, I would still say if you're looking at where the growth is coming from, um, Asia is still an overall market where there's growth opportunities. But as, as many of those markets uh, are still emerging wine drinkers, you know, it will be volatile. But it's really a long-term play into, into that region. Um, we're looking at the US. No doubt the US is still a very challenging market, but it's still the world's biggest premium market. And that the, the premium opportunity remains, even though we know at the moment it's quite challenging. And then into Europe, definitely, you know, that, that part of the world is facing a lot of challenges. Inflation is much higher there than other, than other markets around the world. But with the UK, we're still number one there. It's still our biggest market. And, um, you know, we're actually keeping up pace with the market in terms of growth. So if you're looking at what's happening in retail in terms of the off-trade market, you know, Australian sales actually increased in value by 2% in, in the last 12 months. So there's not, it's not all doom and gloom. Wine Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Peter Bailey, speaking with Selena Green. Well, how long have you waited for a project you've worked on to come to fruition? Could you imagine waiting more than 20 years? This month, the dried fruit industry celebrated the launch of a new grape variety, which has been in development since 1999. The variety has been given the name Sunbold, and Dried Fruits Association Chairman Mark King says he's hoping the new variety will deliver higher yields and also address issues of rot and mould that have long plagued the traditional Sultana variety. So those old sultanas, they just weren't, well, I'm going to say they weren't developed, but they, they were all that was available when they were planted many years ago. They just can't handle the rain. And, of course, I hate to say climate change, but it's changing. We're getting more rain periods and what have you. So DFA, um, that's an industry, is trying to encourage growers to change over to those new varieties. Best risk management they can have. They can spread their harvest over a long period because 
instead of it all coming in in a mad week in February or mad three or four weeks, you can start at the end of January and you'll finish at the end of February. Your staff, you might only need half the amount of staff. Can you give me a bit of a picture of the dried fruit industry at the moment? How many people are planting vines at the moment for dried fruit production? At the moment, there's about 250 growers in the dried fruit industry. We have lost a lot of the smaller growers. Retirement, you know, they've just sold. Often the neighbours have brought the properties. We've got growers now that have bigger areas and we've got corporates that have come in too. But we do the vine counts. We've had a lot more vines go in in the last three or four years than we ever had before, or going back to the 90s any rate. And are you hoping that a new variety like this one might encourage more growers to get back into the market? Oh, I hope it does. I mean, there are other new varieties out there, but this one here, if they, well, we had 50-odd people turn up here today, which was really good. And obviously the, um, they're keen to see what the new variety is. CSIRO Honorary Fellow Peter Klingeleffer was involved in the development of the Sunbowl variety more than two decades ago. By our breeding standards, it's quite short, but by other standards, it's quite long. The cross was made in 1999. The seedling from that cross would have been planted in 2001 or 2002. For dried fruit growers, the launch of the new variety is bittersweet. Sunball represents one of the last new varieties that are likely to come out of a CSIRO breeding program that is now no longer producing new crosses for dried grapes, table grapes or citrus. CSIRO Crops Program Research Director Dr Anne Ray says CSIRO has redirected its plant breeding program to focus on wine grapes, cereal crops and pulses. So we've had long-standing programs in, in citrus development, table grapes and dried grape breeding. The work is evolving now, so we're no longer making new crosses in our breeding work, but we are still evaluating the advanced selections that have come from those crosses. So we still have a large number of selections which could be potential varieties, and we're continuing the work to evaluate those to see which ones have the best commercial potential as new varieties. And what's the reason for not making any new, new lines? Some decisions, I guess, about support for that work. So the work that we do in breeding any type of crop is generally supported and often by industry funding. If that industry funding isn't available, then we're shifting that work into the next stage, taking that forward to look for ways of, of using the material that we've already generated and getting products out of that. So it's really about where the industry support is coming from and which stage of that breeding pipeline we are focusing on at the moment. But who who will be taking over that work of generating new crosses in the future? I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that's something that the industry needs to um, to look at and evaluate where the opportunities can come from. We know that there are other, other breeding companies with an interest in delivering varieties for Australia. So, for instance, the, 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 the company that we're partnering with for the citrus varieties is, is able to access a wider variety of, of material which would come to Australia and benefit the selections that are available here. So there are other people who have an interest in doing that work. It's not, it's not only CSIRO who's able to deliver that, but we're interested in partnering opportunities. That decision that we would, we would move from the initial crossing into the evaluation was made quite a number of years ago. This is something which has been in, in, in process for quite a long time now. That was CSIRO Research Director Dr Anne Ray ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. And I'm Bridget Herman with you for the show today. Well, you've probably heard of asparagopsis. 
It's a red seaweed native to Australia that CSIRO research has shown could reduce methane emissions from cattle if they include it in their diet. Now, Future Feed, the group that holds the global rights to Asparagopsis, has released a report on its progress towards commercialisation. CEO Alex Baker told David Clawton that nine companies have been licensed to produce it around the world in a few different ways. No one grew asparagopsis as we started this um, this exercise. So um, the licensees have had to really um, develop de novo uh, methods and techniques for, for cultivating and developing this at significant scale. Um, and so they've made um, really good progress. There's a range of different technologies that have been developed on a proprietary basis by um, a number of the licensees. There's um, also approaches being um, uh, made in the ocean growing sense, so people are still looking at growing in the ocean, growing it on a terrestrial basis, and then also growing it in a more biotechnological basis, which is looking at using photobioreactors. So there's a real coverage in terms of the cultivation, and each of those technologies have direct paths to significant scale into the millions of litres of, of cultivation of the seaweed. So, what, what do you think we'll get up first, and where will we see it coming from? Yeah, I, I think we'll see it out of the um, out of the licensees uh, cultivation techniques, which will be you know terrestrial land based uh, methodologies using tanks, raceways, and and other things where. They've adopted it from existing technologies in the um, algal, other algal technology spaces. So I think that's where we'll see it. And then I do think um, we'll see um, you know, increased supply come from both the nation base and, as well as then the, um, the biotech uh, approaches. And what about um, asparagopsis compared to other products on the market? Because the Dutch have had the running on this, haven't they? They're, they're kind of with their product Boviar. It's really been out there for quite some time now. Yeah, absolutely. And the Dutch probably started a decade even before um, this Baragopsis technology um, was even invented. So, I mean, they've been at this nearly 20 years. Um, so they've definitely got a, um, a leading start. That's been really actually very helpful for us to understand um, how regulators are seeing the space, um, particularly on a, on a global basis, looking at the you know, large markets in Europe and the US or the Americas broadly. Um, so, um, are you coming to the party late? Do you think? Like, what are the, what are the what's the potential for actually selling the product once? It's yeah, no, I developed? think um, there is there's a significant efficacy difference between what we see in terms of reduction of methane by feeding asparagopsis compared to the utilisation of bovis. So, I think um, that we we do have. Um, an equal, uh, in fact, better chance of um, providing greater levels of um, abatement of methane in, in the different um, animal systems. But there was some concern about handling asparagopsis, wasn't there? That it was toxic at some level. Um, at, at, you know, the way we've um, formulated and looked at the feeding amounts, so we've spent a significant amount of research um, and, uh, you know, commercial research to establish uh, the feeding amounts, which are very, very small relative to the overall feed that's given to an animal on a daily basis. And at that level, it's very, very safe um, for for both the handlers uh, and the animals as well. So, so no, one of the recent trials was showing that the reductions in emissions was quite effective up to a certain point. But when you push beyond a certain level of of using the asparagopsis, it, it potentially could dive again. So does the animal adjust and then the emissions go up again? 
So what we've seen, um, one of the longest um, or longitudinal studies that we've seen, there was no adaption um, to the uh, supplement across the, the time period. And we've also seen that across all the other studies, which are um, slightly shorter. So I mean, the, at the moment, we've fed across you know, 73 to 300 days. The evidence is we're seeing that there's no ad- adaptation at the levels that we've um, dialed into. And that's really the important thing that we've really established a... Um, you know, an amount that is effective um, to achieve an 80% reduction, you know, within the the beef feedlot setting, and then we'll continue to look at dairy uh, as we develop more data and and positions around formulation. Future Feed CEO Alex Baker, he said, work on a carbon emissions methodology should be finalised in a couple of years, and that'll clear the way for producers to apply for official government carbon credits. Future Feed has licensed partners in South Australia, Tasmania, Western Australia and Victoria, as well as overseas in New Zealand, the United States, Europe and Canada. Well, I want to take you to South Australia now, where earlier this week, tractors, harvesters and trucks lined the streets of Renmark in the Riverland as growers in Australia's largest wine grape growing region protested for greater sustainability in their industry. Wine grape growers and the contractors drove dozens of farm vehicles through Renmark in protest against unsustainable prices. Growers are choosing to dump their grapes or even let them rot on the vines rather than be paid below-cost prices for harvesting them. Eliza Berlage spoke with growers who were choosing to protest. Savagagas. Uh, we just start, uh, got a few of the boys, a few of the girls together to start a bit of a protest to show awareness in the industry. I'm only young, I'm still 25, and well, if the industry collapses, I collapse, really. This is all I know, and this is what I love doing, and I want to keep doing it, but at these prices, we can't keep doing it. And Sava, you've taken to the streets with your tractors, trucks, and harvesters down the main street of Renmark. What did that feel like? Yeah, it feels you know what, it feels good because this is what we need to do because, like I said, if we don't do anything, I'm out. And I don't know anything better. I'm stuffed. That's it. I'm done. And were people mostly pretty, um, you know, patient for you guys to move this this action, this Yeah, there, there was a couple of guys that stopped me there and said, good, keep doing it. The Riverland's going to collapse if this is not happening. We, we are the Riverland. Us farmers are the Riverland. We are the food bowl. And what's the mood amongst you and your fellow growers today? Uh, a lot of anger. A lot of anger. We're all angry. We're all angry. I'll be honest, I've got to harvest tomorrow. I don't want to harvest. Why should I harvest when I don't know what I'm getting? And are you planning to deliver your grapes this year for vintage? Oh, that's still something I've got to think about. Lastly as well, you obviously had that big heated meeting yesterday with a big turnout. You know, How do you feel after that meeting yesterday? I feel like more people are hungry. Hungry to get more answers. Um, yeah, I'm Jarvis Wandersberg and I'm a vineyard contractor in Riverland. And Jarvis, are you part of this big action today, this protest of vehicles? Well, yes, I am because, um, well, with the grape industry being the way it is, like, uh, it affects everyone, contractors like myself, businesses, you know, no one's spending any money and it affects the whole region. And how long have you been working in the industry for? Uh, about five, six years now. Yeah. And I guess what have you seen over that time? 
Well, you know, when I first started, times were a little bit better, and then now they've just slowly dwindled off, and it's just, yeah, this year's looking really shocking, so... Yeah. And what did it feel like to take to the streets with your tractors, trucks and harvesters? Well, it's good. Hopefully we can just make someone listen and, um, you know, appreciate what's actually going on in the industry. And, yeah, because so far no one's really taken any notice. And, yeah, Jarvis, you were saying you and Sava are some of the younger guys here. You know, the average age of growers and people in the industry is, you know, you know, 60 or 50. Why is it really important for you young blokes to say something as well? Well, you know, if um, the industry goes down now, what future do we have? You know, like I started out my business study uh, in 2020 and, like, it's already dwindling off because uh, the industry's just going downhill. And what has that meant for you? Have you been able to pay your bills? Well, only just... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's looking pretty, yeah, it's pretty bad at the moment. And what sort of action would help you? Well, just get someone to listen, like, to realise what the wineries are doing and that's wrong, like, you know, some of the stuff they're coming out with, yeah, just not right. Riverland grape grower Jarvis Wondenberg. Well, that's all for Countrywide this week. I've been your host, Bridget Herman. You can find more of the program on your favourite podcasting app. You can also read more news about your food and where it comes from on the ABC website. Bye for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.